Welcome to Laptop Gurus from 23, the podcast which looks to scratch beneath the surface with the aid of data and detailed analysis. My name is Tom Bedell and my guest on our first edition of 2021 is Chris Smith, an MLS expert who you can find on One Goal and someone who covers European football for Squawker, among other places. Chris, thanks for joining us on Laptop Gurus. How are you doing? Uh, yeah, it's an absolute pleasure. Uh, excited to be here. Superb. Well, Major League Soccer is obviously in its off-season at the moment and ahead of the new campaign, which is anticipated will start in March. We're going to go deep on some of the biggest talking points around the league, starting with Inter Miami's new head coach hire. And this was quite literally confirmed ahead of our recording today. No secret, of course, that it was going to be Phil Neville. He comes in to replace Diego Alonso, who was let go at the end of the season. I mean, a little bit of confusion, I think it's fair to say. And joining him in the front office is Chris Henderson, who's going to be the new sporting director and chief soccer officer. Um, Chris, first and foremost, how do you summarise into Miami's inaugural season in Major League Soccer? Um, and what are the, the immediate challenges Phil Neville's going to kind of find out about in the coming days and weeks? Yeah, well, I think it's safe to say that it didn't really go to plan uh, based on how much hype was surrounding the franchise that had a kickoff. But I will give them a bit of benefit of the doubt in that expansion years aren't easy. You know, your most recent example of a, an expansion team just tanking in the first years, FC Cincinnati, and they still not got off the ground, really. That said, as I mentioned, there was a lot of hype surrounding into Miami, um, probably one of the most anticipated franchises ever to enter the league. And the style we saw on the pitch just didn't fit the image. Um, they were promised attacking football, which they didn't get. You know, they ranked way down the league in terms of things like shots on targets, goals, final third passes. Uh, more worryingly as well in the fact that they were promised a certain brand of football. They weren't even a great possession team. You know, they were low in the league in terms of attempted passes. Uh, they relied a lot on individual quality from the likes of Rodolfo Pizarro, Lewis Morgan. And this inability in possession, in turn, obviously caused a lot of turnovers and, and piled a lot of pressure on the defence, which they ultimately they weren't able to cope with. Um, it's disappointing because Diego Alonso's done a lot of great things in Mexico and he was an exciting hire, but it just didn't seem to work out. He couldn't seem to get a clear picture on how he wanted the team to play. The, the recruitment was a bit haphazard. I think the first issue that's sort of awaiting Phil Neville now that he comes in is, is building a playable roster because they've let a lot of players go mainly because of, like I said, that haphazard sort of recruitment strategy, you know, like the Ben Sweat, Will Trapp, AJ De La Garza, Lee Wynn. They've all gone. Luis Robles has retired in goal, so they need to find a new top-class MLS goalkeeper. Uh, obviously, there's still plenty of time before the season starts, but there's a lot to unpack and, and get stuck into there. As you rightly said, a team that obviously, uh, you know, huge amount of expectation around given the ownership and the, the battle they've had to kind of get into the league in the first place only heightened, I think, by um, you know a couple of the signings they made in particular. Thinking Blaise Matuidi and, and Gonzalo Higuain from Juventus. How did how did those guys and and some of the other perhaps more uh, the names that are better known in in Europe get on in that first season? And are they going to be kind of key men uh, this season coming? Uh, if I was to sum it up quickly, there were. Higuain and Matuidi especially were, were really disappointing. Um, Matuidi, the actual business to get him through the door was fantastic. Um, I'm hoping a lot of the listeners are familiar with the MLS transfer rules that are extensive and complicated. But long story short, they managed to avoid signing to a designated player deal, which they're only allowed three of, 
which then freed up that space for Higuain to come in. So that was an incredible bit of business. But game after game, Matuidi just he just seemed to pass him by. And he really, he, for a player who's been known for his industry in the past, he seemed to have really heavy legs and couldn't quite adjust to the pace of MLS. Um, if one thing, if it lacks a bit of quality now and then, it never lacks in athleticism. And from from what I watched, Matuidi just couldn't keep up with it. For, for Higuain... He showed sparks. He, he was a much better focal point for Miami in that they were able to play off him. Uh, they could get the ball into him and know he could hold it up and then sort of get the likes of Rodolfo Pizarro and Mateus Pellegrini more, in, more involved in play. But his output, one goal and one assist, isn't good enough um, to, to get a team, A, further into the playoffs and B, to actually be a challenger to win MLS Cup and then obviously to fulfil the expectations upon him and this and this franchise. So... I will give him, again, a bit of benefit of the doubt. He seemed like he had a massive target on his head every time someone played against him. The defenders were really keen to sort of stamp their authority on him and it, it resulted in a few sort of breakouts of fights on the pitch. But, no, there's a lot more that needs to come from them too, especially in the, in 2021 if, if Neville's going to be a success. And what do we know about Phil Neville, the coach? He's obviously worked alongside his brother at Valencia, had, I think, one, possibly two games as Salford City interim coach previously. Uh, and then his big kind of one main full-time appointment was England women's coach. And I think that the jury's out on how well he did there, certainly raised the profile perhaps of the team, but uh, you know, how much he actually developed them tactically. What have we learned from this, uh, this CV to date? What do we expect from, from him now in Miami? Yeah, well, obviously the, the England women's job was, was the big sort of litmus test of, Neville as a manager and that was the biggest sample size and I'll start off with a positive in that he's come from that England system which whether it's Gareth Southgate's senior men's team any of the youth teams across to the women's game at all levels they have a defined way that they want to play now and a, and a real identity you know they're, they're seen as a, a front-footed team they're all about keeping hold of the ball and dictating play and I think largely Neville was no different during his time in charge with, with the England women's team you know in, in, like to make the pitch nice and big, give players space to play out from the back, give his creative players space to sort of find those those passes behind the opposition defence. So in that sense, I think he's going to come with a, a plan on how he wants to set up and it might well be a style that could get the best out of the likes of Pizarro and Higuain. So there's a positive to start off on. I don't, you know, I don't want to, I'm personally not a fan of the appointment, but I don't want to go in too hard, my guy. Just talk to us about that then, because... From my point of view, I'm I've, I was quite sceptical, and we we talked about this a little bit when we were we were setting this up uh, last week when it became kind of apparent this was going to happen. You know, there's obviously an inescapable link between uh, Phil Neville and David Beckham, and that is a link that has a thread that has run through most of his appointments. You know, uh, Valencia, obviously Peter Lim, Peter Lim, who then is a, a shareholder in in Salford City as well. With you know Beckham in the class of '92. If you're being sceptical, it's not hard to find cause for scepticism in this sort of a bit of an old pals act. What is that the root of your kind of concern or, or what, why are you kind of sceptical about this one? The criticism that's getting levelled at it at the moment is sort of it's just a job for the boys sort of thing, which I think might be a little unfair. You know, Neville, he's, he's managed a national team, so let's give him some credit. But I think Beckham firstly forgets some of the other players that he he played alongside during his career. You know, you, you don't play at Manchester United, Real Madrid, AC Milan, PSG without 
playing alongside some absolute world-class talents, many of which are in management or going into management now. So, you know, you see, see like he played with Steven Gerrard, for example, at, at international level, that the job he's doing at Rangers. So, yeah, it's it's an underwhelming name, but let's let's give him time to sort of put his stamp on the team. The, the main criticism, I think, from Miami fans as well is it just doesn't quite fit the identity of the club. You know, there's a... There's a huge sort of Latin community and a, a, a Hispanic community down there, and and they also love that South American flair, which I think was the whole reason why Diego Diego Alonso was brought in in the first place. So this just seems to be a step away from from that original point that they started off at as a club. But as I say, let's give them the benefit of the doubt and let's let them play a few games first. Absolutely. Well, that that is a theme and and something we're going to discuss around another franchise later in the show. And you, anyone who is a MLS follower can probably guess who that is and why. But in terms of Inter Miami and their kind of squad profile, um, the players they've got already, and we've mentioned a few of the kind of the names that will be recognised by European audiences. But taking it as a whole, what is the profile of that Miami squad? What are their strengths? What are their weaknesses? It's really hard to judge their main strength at the moment. Partly because they just lacked identity under Alonso. And also, they're in the middle of totally overhauling the squad, as I mentioned before. They've let a lot of players go, and they're yet to replace most of them. Uh, one thing I will say is they were one of the better ball-winning sides in MLS. They, they worked really hard out of possession. Well, that, that's obviously a symptom of not having the ball much anyway, but they, they seem to be quite aggressive defensively. And they've got some good pieces there, like Leandro Gonzalez Perez, for example, who's an MLS Cup winner with Atlanta United, who... I think if if Neville gets it right, he can he can put them together to be a tough defensive unit. Obviously, that's not quite going to cut it, and fans are going to expect more. But at least there seems to be a few players there who he can build a foundation off to get him off the ground. Um, I think at the moment Neville's most important sort of well top of his to do list is making him more excited in the final third. I mentioned before about a lack of creativity, but. It, to me, it seemed like if Rodolfo Pizarro or Lewis Morgan, the, the Scottish winger that they've got, didn't turn up, they didn't have any answers in the final third. Um, I think sort of finding another creative player to complement those is obviously going to bring the best out of Higuain and offer more goals to the team and, and more output in the final third. If there's, I think if, there, if there's one player I'd like to highlight that maybe not many people know about, he's, it's a very sort of... You have to be really into MLS to know about him, but they've they've got a young Venezuelan, Christian McCoon, who signed last year. He's he spent time at Juventus. He's only 20 years old. Uh, captain of the Venezuela under 20 national team, really highly regarded in his in his homeland. Can play as a defensive midfielder. He can play as a centre back. He's he's strong in the tackle, good in the air, really hard working. And from the small sample size I've seen so far, because he only played a few games and then was was loaned out to the development squad. He seems like a really good passer who could could make Miami more progressive with the ball and sort of more dominant in possession. So there's one player definitely to watch. I was going to say that was actually going to be you've preempted my next question nicely. Who, if there's one player that Phil Neville really needs to get the best out of in the 2021 campaign, who would that be? Is that McCoon or is would that be somebody else? Just would you say? I wouldn't say necessarily it'd be be McCoon himself. I just think he's a he's a player that I'll be watching with a lot of interest. But I think. I'm going to have to go for the obvious one. If, if Neville really needs to get a tune out of anyone, it's got to be Higuain. They just they simply need more goals and a better focal point up front. We can't talk about Inter Miami without mentioning David Beckham's involvement. We touched upon it already a couple of times. Um, the COVID-19 pandemic has obviously 
limited his ability to travel to Miami. I don't think he was there a, a huge amount last season for obvious reasons, but he's already kind of you know vowed to be more hands-on this season and promised big changes. We've seen that, of course, the, the change of head coach, the change of uh, sporting director. What more do we expect from, I guess, his involvement and uh, and into Miami in their second season as an MLS franchise. Yeah, well, Beckham himself hasn't really specified what more involvement actually means, but all the sources and, and all the reports I've read seem to suggest he's going to be much more involved in football-related matters. Uh, I think you can see that already reflected in the appointment of Neville, whether you like it or not. It seems like a Beckham decision. Uh, last year, he was a, a visible co-owner at the start of the season, uh, when things were getting up and running, he was there at the early games. He was at the stadium when they were supposed to play the first game, and obviously COVID put pay to that. But then, as the season went on, he faded into the background. Um, I don't think that was an intention to distance himself from the club. Of course, I just think he was playing it quiet to see how things panned out and maybe setting himself up for this reboot that they're doing now. But from everything that I hear, he was really unhappy with the way things panned out last year, and he wants to use this this season as a as a fresh restart and. You know, that's from hiring a new manager, a new sporting director, overhauling the squad to make it more competitive. And and credit to him and, and the rest of the ownership group. They've, they've spared no expense when it comes to facilities. You know, they've spent hundreds of millions on, on new training facilities, branding and, and player recruitment, bringing in Higuain, who I believe is the highest paid player in MLS at the moment. I think now he just wants to be more hands-on to make sure that investment doesn't go to waste again. Let's talk about the other the other hire this week. Obviously, Chris Henderson arrives and, and those who have got who have followed MLS for a while will know he's obviously, you know, played in the league for a, a very long time, uh, you know, had a great deal of success in a, his career as a player, but has also transferred that to the front office and been, uh, you know, fantastic uh, kind of sporting director, head of soccer, whatever the, the role has been at Seattle Sounders over the years. How much of a coup is that appointment for Inter Miami and how important is, is, is Chris Henderson going to be to... Um, you know, bringing the success they ultimately want and the the, the strategy to get them, uh, get them there because he he did you know superb things with the Sounders over thirteen years I think it was. Yeah, well, I mean, for a start off, over three hundred MLS appearances and seventy nine caps of the national team is great pedigree in itself. But as you said, the job he did over thirteen years with Seattle is incredible. You know, the, the Sounders have been. For me, the best team in MLS across the past 11 to 12 years, at least in terms of winning silverware. You know, they've, they've won two MLS Cups, they've been to another two finals, support a shield, four US Open Cups. And if that's not proof enough to, to what sort of squad Henderson can build, then what is? But obviously on the pitch, he's, he's unearthed some great homegrown talents, you know, like Sir Christian Roldan came through a draft, and you've got Jordan Morris there, he looks on the verge of moving to Swansea. They've both been international mainstays and on any other roster, they'd arguably take a designated player spot, but obviously Henderson's found him in the local market and, and the homegrown. So. But his transfer record's incredible too. You know, Raul Rui Diaz is one of the league's best strikers. Nicol Adero brings it year after year as, a, as an elite number 10 in that league and he's a Uruguay international. Plenty of pedigree there. And more than anything, I think what's helped... Seattle's sustained success is he's built consistent squads which the core seems it's very European in that the core stays the same a comparison I bring is is Chelsea's Mourinho squad where you've got Czech then you've got Terry you've got Lampard and Drogba there's your spine through the middle he's 
he's sort of very good at building a core group of players and keeping them around for a few years, which in turn obviously breeds a, a winning mentality. And I think consistency is the biggest thing that Miami are looking for at the moment. So on the face of it, it looks like a great hire. And finally, on, on into Miami, what are the kind of main challenges Chris Henderson faces in a kind of squad building remit um, in the off season? I think the first thing which stands out to me is just simply adding a bit of depth. Um, as I mentioned before, a lot of players have, have left. I don't think sort of the depth chart was very deep last year to begin with, and you know they were relying on players with with very little experience when when some of the sort of senior heads got injured. So the MLS quality depth in all positions, and you know this is a league that presents its own challenges in terms of the the travel distances and the times and playing through international breaks. So getting a nice deep core squad there that can be easily rotated without sort of letting down the quality is very important. But I think the, the, the biggest thing that stands out to me is they need to figure out how to open up another designated player spot. As I mentioned before, MLS teams are only allowed three. And Miami already have theirs filled with Rodolfo Pizarro, Gonzalo Higuain and Mateus Pellegrini, uh, the latter of which was very disappointing last year. Um, came as a young Argentine with a lot of hype and just games just bypassed him. Uh, he, he just couldn't seem to cope with again with the pace and the physicality of MLS. So, I mean, they could perhaps look to buy down his contract to give him freedom to make another another signing as a designated player. And you know they're going to have to sort of adjust the the roster a little bit and, and play with the rules in MLS. But they they need that injection of quality that a designated player brings, and I think that's again right up at the top of the list of his of Henderson's priorities well it certainly sounds like a big job ahead for Phil Neville Chris Henderson and I guess David Beckham and co as well It'd be very interesting to see how into Miami do in their second season in Major League Soccer that's the end of the first part of today's episode of Laptop Gurus we're going to take a very short break and then we'll be back for the second part of today's show where we talk about another couple of coaching hires that have happened in the off season don't go anywhere Welcome back to Laptop Gurus. Today I'm joined by Chris Smith, freelance football journalist and MLS expert. Crucially, and we are talking about some of the big storylines to come out of the league this off-season. We've already covered the appointment of Phil Neville at Inter Miami and we're now going to move on to a couple of new hires that have happened recently at a couple of other big franchises, starting at Atlanta United, who have picked up Gabriel Ainsley, former Manchester United, Real Madrid, Roma defender, who's carved out a bit of a coaching career for himself in recent years in his homeland with Godoy Cruz, Argentinos Juniors and Velas Sarsfield where he twice qualified for the Copa Sudamericana before his handing in his resignation and he's coming in off the back of disastrous might be too strong a word and Chris can tell me in a minute uh, season for, for the five stripes and another change in the front office as well as the appointment of Paul McDonough who was Previously at Inter Miami, um, ironically enough, but returns to Atlanta United, where he really uh, had you know fantastic success. Previously built the club's first championship squad in his his previous spell. So Chris, there's a lot to unpick from Atlanta's 2020 season. Obviously, uh, a, a team I think that kind of permeates uh, the into Europe kind of and European consciousness with the 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 story they've had and so on, but. What was the kind of what what went wrong last season, and what's the legacy of that for the franchise? 
Yeah, well, as an Atlanta United fan myself, it was incredibly tough to watch last season. Um, the, the team lacked style, lacked substance with the ball. You know, it was slow, lethargic and predictable build-up play where they just seemed happy to keep the ball at the back and every time it looked like they needed to, to start moving things forward, they just had no one to give it to, no one able to pick the passes and they were just turned over so easily. Um, they were unable to find answers once Joseph Martinez was injured. You know, he, he tore his ACL and that put him out for the season. They ranked 19th for shots on target in the league, 24th for chances created, I think they were 19th again for final third passes attempted. I know they're cold hard stats, but they do tell a story about how slow and predictable and unimaginative this Atlanta United team were. And the longer the season went on, the more the players' heads dropped to the point where if they didn't score first in the game, you knew what the outcome was going to be. You know, the, the lack of ability in possession, like a bit like into Miami, it forced a lot of pressure on the defence. And honestly, without Miles Robinson at centre-back and I'd throw George Bellow at left-back there as well, it could have been a lot worse. Um, in terms of legacy, I think the club's... Well, the, the, the club's front office themselves have said that 2021 is going to be a big reboot and, and going back to the roots. And I think if there's a legacy from... 2020 and maybe 2019 looking a bit further back it's stick to your roots and and learn from your mistakes I think is the, is the biggest legacy that's left there when they won the MLS Cup a couple of seasons ago now obviously the the partnership of uh, Martinez and, and Miguel Almiron was you know pivotal to that not not that there weren't other stars in that team because there certainly were how big a part did losing uh, Martinez to an ACL injury after just a single game have they won they won those first two and then went on a you know horrible run at the MLS's back tournament which ultimately cost Frank De Boer his job but is it kind of over simplifying it to say that without their kind of main forward uh that things kind of unraveled I don't think it's oversimplifying it to say that's what caused it to unravel um I put Raul Ruiz before as one of the best strikers in MLS over the past few years Joseph Martinez is the best striker in MLS at the moment when fit. Um, in 2019, he, he carried that team. You know, some of, some of his headers were he, he's bursting in at the back post and jumping higher than someone that size should be able to reach physically. Uh, he, he can finish. He can hold the ball up. He's tenacious and he demands so much of his of his teammates. He just raises the standards around the club. And missing that in your team, a lot of the Atlanta United players just look lost without him and. Then obviously there's his, his production, his, his insane ability in front of goal. It, it's hard in MLS to, to find someone who can score that many goals when you've got no designated player spots open. You know, They tried it with Eric Torres, they tried it with Adam Yarn, they tried playing Pity Martinez up front, they tried playing Ezekiel Barco through the middle and no one found answers, um, which doesn't surprise me, but... I only think that Martinez was masking over problems that were emerging... Anyway, um, I think the biggest problem for me with Atlanta United last year, aside from the obvious, was they completely lacked a number six to dictate play and, and offer the centre-backs a passing option. Um, they let Darlington Nagby go to Columbus Crew. He obviously went on and won MLS Cup with him and was a star star in that team. I think he's the best sort of deep-line playmaker in MLS. Uh, I can't believe he's not got more caps for, for USA. Um, he's super safe in possession, progressive. He can he can dribble through pressure, no problem. He's solid defensively, and 
the gap that was left in the midfield when he left just never got never got filled. Yeah, talk to me about that one because I must admit I, I can't pretend to follow it closely, but in in the games I've seen and what have you, and I watched a reasonable amount of Atlanta as that as they won the MLS Cup a couple of years ago. I, he always seemed like a good player to me as someone who sort of dips in and out. Was there was there a bigger reason? Was there kind of trade benefits or, or or financial benefits to making that deal what was the kind of what was behind that can you can you shed any light on that one yeah it was it was Nagby's decision himself um he's from Ohio and he wanted to go back home so you know I said the club let him go before perhaps that's a little fair they, they didn't really have much of a choice but where they did have a choice was trying to replace him and they, they failed miserably and, and that cost them daily. Yeah, so last season, obviously, De Boer was let go in towards the end of July after the MLS's back uh, tournament kind of failure. And then Stephen Glass, who holds a, a, a particularly uh, a fond place in my heart as a, as a Watford fan, he wasn't here for long, but made a, a sizable impact, was, to my surprise, appointed interim head coach and saw out the season. There was seemingly not a huge rush to make that permanent appointment was there a particular reason for that and and how did how did the the front office land at uh, Gabriel Enzi as their appointment in the long run i think the reason behind the sort of the slow appointment uh, and taking the time with it is the lack of jeopardy at the bottom of mls um, obviously there's a, a big argument over promotion and relegation but the fact is that you can finish bottom and then you get the chance to restart again next season so you know I think the club saw that as, you know, we don't have to rush, we don't have to try and force 2020 to be a success, let's take our time and make the right hire and, and learn from our mistakes, as I mentioned before. And obviously, Carlos Bocanegra said recently that although there was a long wait to, to announce it, uh, Gabriel Inter quickly emerged as the prime target. Um, so they, they clearly had sort of a certain style of manager in mind that, that brings them back closer to the roots and it was all about just just making sure it was done in the right way and, and getting the right guy through the door. Absolutely, and said earlier, you know, the kind of um, Hispanic Latin uh, background roots of Inter Miami, uh, and that the same was true of another club. That club is, of course, Atlanta United. Uh, Tata Martino was head coach previously, and and they've made a big point, haven't they, about you know, as you say, returning to their roots by appointing a South American coach. Why is that so important to Atlanta United for those who might not be um, au fait with the, the club? Uh, well, f- right from the word go in 2017 when they entered the league, uh, I think I'm safe to say Atlanta United wowed MLS and, and the wider American community with with some really exciting football. And it was, it was attacking, it was high octane, depressed high really direct and vertical in the play and they swamped teams in the final third, especially in, in the first year. Um, obviously in 2018 when they won MLS Cup, they did adjust to a bit more of a counter-attacking team to get them through the playoffs, but they were largely known for that high-octane, intense attacking style of football. Uh, the style was facilitated by a South American coach in Tata Martino, uh, South American players, you know, the obvious ones like Joseph Martinez and Miguel Almiron, but Tito Villalba had a great year in 2017. Then obviously you've got players like Eric Rometty and you've got Ezekiel Barco, you know, all familiar with that sort of South American culture. And I think I think the term in America is damped with the one that brung you. And I think that's exactly what they're trying to do now by bringing Gabriel Ainsley back. And in terms of De Boer and why he failed um, Atlanta, did the fact that his kind of background was in 
European soccer, you know, coached at obviously big clubs, Ajax and Inter and, uh, you know, less successfully even at Palace brief, very briefly. Did that put him at a disadvantage, do you think, uh, in his very short time at the club, at the franchise? Yeah, well, obviously, De Boer was a huge step away from that culture. Um, I'm not even sure it was solely to do with him being European, because obviously you see teams like Spain and you know France at times, even England at the moment, play some play some really entertaining football. I think it was more just down to his own philosophy. Uh, the the build up was a lot slower. He obvi- when he when he signed for the club, he said that he's going to turn the club into more of a, a possession dominant team. And while that was true, it was incredibly rigid, um, and they seemed to lack a willingness to hit teams in transition like like they had done during that MLS Cup winning season and. The players appeared to be shackled by some more intense tactical instructions and it was all a lot more methodical rather than sort of that expressive style of play which Martino brought to them, which, you know, when you've had two years where you've qualified for the playoffs in your first year and then won the big prize in your second year, that that can be a tough pill to swallow for the fans. So, yeah, it left them at an immediate disadvantage. Whilst you were talking there, I was just pulling up some of the stats on them. No coincidence then in what you've said that they were second in the league for passes attempted and passes completed but i guess if the uh, the end result isn't in uh, you know isn't reflected in the number of goals you score and they certainly weren't one of the most uh, prolific teams you're going to struggle aren't you let's let's talk about Gabriel Lane. so then as mentioned a little bit of his kind of coaching resume um moved around a bit in argentina certainly seems to be someone who's quite principled and you know, won't uh, stand for people not giving him what he wants or not backing him as he wants. What do we expect from him? And and the fact that he's a former player of uh, Tata Martino and has been influenced. So we're told by Marcelo Bielsa, are we expecting any similarities to either of those guys in their coaching styles, both, you know, very clearly kind of defined and in, in, in what they expect from their players? Yeah, I think based on, on what he's done so far, I mean, He's taken Argentinos juniors to a top-flight promotion, and then when he took over at Vélez, he he took a struggling team and got them into the Copa Sudamericana for two years running. So he's obviously got a habit of turning struggling teams round, which I think bodes really well for Atlanta because few struggled like them in MLS last year. But I mean, tactically, I think we can expect them to go back to being much more front-footed. I mean, shortly after he took over at Vélez, Inter had Adam sort of hunting in packs and really ferociously pressing, very similar to how a Bielsa side would try and win the ball back. Uh, he's been known to switch between those 3-3-3-1, 3-3-1-3 systems that Bielsa often uses. I think Inter himself prefers a 4-3-3, which I think will lend very well to Atlanta United if they get the recruitment well. Um, he seems to use... Is number six, or obviously in Argentine terms, a number five to to dictate play and you know get that that player dropping between the centre backs to stretch the opposition press, provide passing passing options straight through the lines, and I think that's where his first issue is going to lie. As I mentioned before, is replacing Downton Nagby, but I think if he can if he can get that one right, he's got some really good players to sort of in, in Marcelino Moreno getting Joseph Martinez back, Eric Lopez has come in. Hopefully, he can get a tune out of Ezekiel Barco. If he, if he can get those right, then I think we could, we could see a return to more of a 2017, 2018 Atlanta United. And 
there are similar similarities there between Ainsley and Martino and Bielsa, and I think that's something that the fans are really excited about at the moment. And equally important to that, from the reading I've done in preparation for this, Chris seems to be the return of Paul McDonough, who was uh, at the club, as I said, the, fir- the, the franchise the first time around when they won the MLS Cup in 2018, as you say. What's his kind of, what's his rep, what's his background like, and and, and how important was he in, in building that squad uh, under Tata Martino that, uh, you know, were MLS champions? Yeah, well, I mean, Madonna was one of the um, primarily responsible for building that first 2017 and then obviously the 2018 roster, which included bringing in like Sir Joseph Martinez, Almiron, Villalba, but then also more unsung performers like Leandro Gonzalez-Perez, Franco Escobar, Eric Remedi. And obviously, he had the foresight to bring in some real leaders like Michael Parkhurst and Jeff Laurentowitz, who were immensely experienced in MLS terms and, and players that they're going to struggle to replace this time around. But some of the players from that original roster are still around now. Atlanta, they do need a, an injection of quality right across the pitch. And as I say, that experience needs replacing. But it's my hope and, and the hope of other Atlanta United fans that he's, he's the best person to do it, given that he's done it before. And I think McDonough himself, he'll, he'll be quite happy to return because from what I understand, his role at Inter-Miami would involve far more away from the pitch and I think this move allows him to, to solely focus on recruitment again, which I think is, is where he excels. Um, I'm going to steal a little title from the guys at Dirty South Soccer here who, who cover Atlanta United, but McDonough's pinned as one of, if not the best budget manager in MLS, which given the complexity of transfers and, and budgeting in the league is no small deal. And that's going to get tested this season. Um, all three DP slots, as I mentioned, are currently filled. The surgery that's needed right across the pitch in terms of a number six, a consistent centre-back partner for Miles Robinson, another exciting forward who can get goals and challenge defenders one-on-one. So there's, there's plenty to do, but he seems like the right guy to do it. So... Here's to hoping. And just finally on Atlanta, obviously, they, they finished 12th in the East last season, 23rd overall. Pretty wretched season, as I said, at the top for, for a franchise that's had the success they've had in such a short space of time. Is, is it unrealistic to expect them, with these appointments, to return to kind of playoff and, and ultimately championship contention? Is there, has there got to be a bit of a, a step between now and then? Or, or would you expect them to be right up there with the other... Uh, contenders I appreciate it's very early kind of in the off season to be asking that question but uh, hopefully you can give us a a perspective in an ideal world yeah of course there'd be time and I think there will be some leeway to allow Inter to put his stamp on the squad given that it's starting from such a bad place and such a a stylistically different place with with what Dubois left and what Stephen Glass had to carry on with but Atlanta United fans have very, very high expectations. So I think if, if things aren't going right in the first 15 to 20 games, I wouldn't say people will be calling for his head. That's a bit dramatic, but they'll be expecting a big turnaround because I think fans want to see him competing back at the top again. Another franchise that obviously expects to be competing uh, you know, at the top, near the top, is LA Galaxy. Uh, and they are another, another outfit that have changed head coach over the off-season. We've got Greg Vanny coming in now. Obviously, very successful at Toronto over the, the course of six years. Uh, former Galaxy player, started and ended his career there before winning the MLS Cup with Toronto in 2017. Qualified for the playoffs three times and won the Supporters' Shield as well. 
where 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 has this appointment kind of come from after such success and and and, and why have galaxy why have the earlier galaxy gone for greg vanny vanny spent seven seasons across two spells with with the galaxy as a player and he won a few, a few trophies there so he's a familiar face he gets the claw and he gets its winning culture uh, and that culture itself has translated into vanny's managerial career so far i mean alongside seattle i'd say Toronto have been one of the best clubs in MLS over the past few years. You know they've they've won MLS Cup, they've reached another two finals. They've come so close to winning Concacaf Champions League in 2017, which is something no team MLS has done yet in its current format. Um, so straight away, it's it's a it's a guy who's familiar with the club and knows its winning culture, and I think that's what they're desperately trying to return to because there were some huge huge, well, not just last season, but there've been some huge problems at LA Galaxy for a few years now in terms of of the recruitment in terms of the style on the pitch, which I'm sure we'll get to. And, and I think Vanny, Vanny feels like the right guy to sort that out. What went wrong in in 2020? They they only lost one of their first six and won four straight between the end of August and uh, through September. How did it kind of unravel uh, after that for, for, for the Galaxy? There, there are some, some stats that really sort of highlight their 2020 really well. And, you know, they, they ranked sixth for crosses attempted in the entire league. They were only 12th for successful crosses and they were 21st for non-penalty XG. And to me, it looked like they were playing with the ghost of Zlatan Ibrahimovic up front, just you know, ex- expecting to throw balls into the box and having someone to be there to, to bully defenders and make the best of every delivery, no matter what the quality. And you know, Obviously, they had Javier Hernandez up there, Chicharito. Uh, that's just not his game. You know, he, He's a poacher. He needs cutbacks. To feet, and he's knocked down from a strike partner or sort of an arriving midfielder. And you know, I will caveat that Hernandez did suffer a number of injury issues, and so did Jonathan DeSantos. You know, his fellow Mexican, who is a huge influence on their ability to dominate possession. But they were a hollow shell of a team given the hype around Chicharito's sort of arrival. You know, he he was a huge disappointment, and the Galaxy were actually better without him. Uh, Christian Pavone was the star man last season and when Chicharito wasn't there, he he was given so much more freedom to sort of roam across the forward line and pick up some more spaces in the, in the final third. It gave players like Sebastian Legette more passing options because he, he was sort of a, a better hold-up player. And yeah, the, I mean, the future of Pavon's a, a, another one that really needs addressing. Uh, obviously, his loan's expired, so... There's plenty there for, for Greg Vanny to, to solve and, and he's going to have his work cut out. I was going to ask you about Zlatan Ibrahimovic because I think it's a fairly obvious thing. Obviously, he had a, a, a very impactful uh, time in Carson. And I suppose as well, it's, it's it, as you mentioned him, it's it's important to talk about Javier Hernandez as well because he kind of arrived to quite a bit of fanfare, I think. And, you know, great pedigree in Europe, obviously very successful player with Mexico and, and given the geography and what have you, I suspect quite a good fit in terms of profile and, and in terms of background for the Galaxy. But if we look at it on a very simple level, one is a six foot plus Adonis and, and one is quite a small scrappy poacher. Was it ever likely to be successful and and was that one of the big issues? Why, when we've talked about recruitment so much, did did the Galaxy decide on you know Javier Hernandez Chigarito to replace Latin Ibrahimovic? It just it doesn't seem to make any sense to me. Well, I'm, I mean, at the risk of annoying quite a few Galaxy fans, uh, they haven't 
I'd say that their recruitment overall in the past few years hasn't really followed a strategy. It was it was a case of, you know, they got Zlatan in and, you know, he, he scored a lot of goals and he had a big impact on the team and he did effectively carry them for quite a while, even even though since he's left, you know, a few players have spoken out about how hard it was to play with him. But Chitterito, if if Shalotto was never going to change his style from that sort of get you know direct get balls into the box and Chicharito was never going to be the right player to come in um a lot of people myself included had it down as what you call say a hype signing it was done for sort of marketing purposes because there's a massive Mexican community in, in LA uh, when it was never really right on the pitch um so you know that the, the top top signings have, have rarely worked out they never stopped crossing the ball in and that ultimately hurt them last season. It made them very predictable and really easy to defend against. So, yeah, that that was the biggest downfall for me. And it, yeah, as you say, it made little sense to bring that profile of player in, given what he was trying to replace. Yeah, a particularly interesting one that one. Let's just talk about a little bit about the uh, the new se- the season ahead then, um, and the kind of coach that the Galaxy have got now in Greg Vanny. What sort of football did his Toronto side player and, and what are the problems that he has to kind of go in and, and pick apart and, and, and find solutions for ultimately? I think in terms of if you if you wanted to profile Vanny as a manager, he, he's very tactically flexible and, and he's a proactive manager that will scout out the opposition before setting up, settling on a formation. Uh, he, he doesn't sort of marry himself to, to one formation. I think if, if you were to pick one out that he uses the most... It'd be a four-four-two, but it often changed to a four-one-four-one because one of the biggest things he does like is is to have a midfield pivot there who can protect against counter-attacks and also set the tempo and control possession. Uh, at Toronto, that was Michael Bradley, and given that you know he, he returns to fitness, you'd expect that to be Jonathan DeSantos at LA Galaxy, which I think getting him back is going to be so important to to how they're going to play um, on his days. One of the best deep line midfielders in, in MLS, so. Hopefully he gets back to fitness. So, yeah, I'd expect him to have far more possession, sort of play through the thirds rather than getting it wide as quickly as possible to throw in those hopeless crosses. You know, Sebastian Legette could act as one of his more advanced creators, but I do think he's going to need to sign another top quality sort of a free eight or a, or a number ten if he's if he's going to sort of mirror the play we saw at Toronto. But the the, the biggest challenge is awaiting him. The obvious being getting the best out of Chicharito or replacing him. Um, with someone from within the club or someone they can maybe sign in a TAM deal, but actually building a roster as well. I read recently that they've only got 13 players contracted right now. So, you know, on the one hand, it gives Vanny a lot of freedom to build his own team, but it also gives him a hell of a lot of work to do to construct a roster that can actually go out on the pitch and, and not be blown out in the first 10 minutes through fatigue. So, And then obviously Christian Pavon's Loans expired, as I mentioned before, and whether or not he's going to return to the Galaxy is anyone's guess. Uh, he was by far and away their best player next year, and they desperately need him to come back if they're going to be competitive. And if he doesn't, they're going to have a very hard time replacing him. Yeah, you mentioned that small roster, and they've obviously been in the market already. They've made a couple of signings that, and both caught my eye for different reasons. Firstly, uh, Jorge Villafania coming in from Portland, where he seemed to be. You know, quite an important player, uh, left back, US men's national team international. So that seems like a, a reasonably interesting signing, even though he's 31. And then West Brom, I think probably third choice goalkeeper, Jonathan Bond, and again from purely 
selfish reasons, a bit like Stephen Glass, a, a man with a Watford connection. He comes in to compete with Jonathan Klinsman for the, the goalkeeping position vacated by David Bingham. What do you make of, of those two signings so far, Chris? Uh, well, the, the Viafania one's really interesting uh, because he, I, I'd say that the biggest thing I have taken from watching him across my years covering the league has, has been that he's a he's a really good cross with the ball so <laughs> if I was a Galaxy fan I'd be quite worried about you know are we actually going to switch styles here or are we just going to go with more of the same but you know he's got a, he's got international experience he's 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 got a ton of experience in in finals with, with the Port and Timbers and that counts for a lot in this league and, and knowing how to manage the playing time and aside from his cross and he is a you know he's, he's quite defensively solid he's He's good in possession. You know, he can he can he can help the galaxy galaxy build out. The Jonathan Bomb one, oof, it's a it's a tough one to know what to make of it. As as you say, he's uh, it's not like he's been playing a great deal of football, and you know, I'd say goalkeeper was a was a position again where really let the galaxy down last year. You know, David Bingham was full of mistakes, and and Jonathan Klinsman would have a good run of form, and then he'd drop a few clangers, and they they couldn't settle in a number one really across the season, so. Is Jonathan Bond the answer? It, it's a big ask, given from the lack of playing time he's coming from, but at least Vanny's trying to put that right now and at least he's trying to address it. Yeah, interesting you mentioned about Villafania's crossing. Uh, Galaxy sixth in MLS last season for crosses per 90. Villafania putting in two of his own per 90 rather suggests that they're going to uh, see a continuation of that trend this season, which uh, may or may not be problematic. Well, that's the end of part two. We're going to take a very short break and then we'll be back for the final part of today's episode of Laptop Gurus, talking about some of the exciting young prospects coming out of Major League Soccer at the moment. So don't go anywhere. Welcome back to this week's edition of Laptop Gurus. I'm joined by Chris Smith, MLS expert and freelance football writer. We've talked so far about teams and some of the uh, coaching changes that we've seen in the off-season. And this was something that Chris suggested uh, when we were talking about this show originally. I thought it was a really good suggestion to talk about some of the youngsters coming out of Major League Soccer. It's typically been seen as kind of a retirement home and it's easy enough to see why obviously you know David Beckham kind of probably kick-started well very literally with the uh, the designated player arrangement kind of kick-started this and we've seen the likes of Wayne Rooney David Villa Thierry Henry and Zlatan Ibrahimovic come over to the league and play late in their 30s but this kind of reputation is 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 quite wrong I think these days isn't it Chris and 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 how did we get to a point where where Major League Soccer is becoming a breeding ground for really talented youngsters who are being exported to Europe. Yeah, I mean, for the outside looking in, I can see why it's it's easy that MLS gets the reputation that it does. I mean, I'll admit that before I started covering the league and really taking a massive interest in it, even I had that, that sort of preconception of the league. But And I do think that some of these high-profile veterans still have their place in the league as well. You know, the game's still growing over there and... And players like Ibrahimovic say what you want about them, they do get bums on seats. So I think that is still important to the league. But I think importantly for MLS's growth and for, for the national team's growth as well, uh, that they are moving away from that slowly but surely. I mean, clubs are far more autonomous now. You know, they're using their own academies to bring through talent and, and trusting those players with minutes on the pitch rather than 
sort of using a centralised system of developing young talent. So that's obviously important on a club-to-club basis. They're getting a bigger cut of outgoing transfers now, which further incentivises the clubs to develop them if they know they're going to get a bigger financial cut. Um, I think finances like that are now playing a much bigger part in a, in the league on a club-to-club basis than it ever has done before. Um, and as well, the obvious benefit of, of bringing through these homegrown players is they don't count towards the salary cap. So if you can unearth, say, a, a Brendan Aronson, for example, who's who's just come through and been Philadelphia Union's main creative force in a 2020 season when they won, won the first ever trophy with a supporter shield, and then move him on for, for a good fee that's close to $10 million, then that's a great incentive. You know, you, it doesn't cost a lot to bring them through. They don't count against your, your salary cap, and then you make a huge profit on, on them, which you, you can then reinvest in, into your playing squad. So I think Don Garber, he, he takes a lot of criticism as in his commissioner role, but I think he does have to be given credit as well for pushing MLS towards being a selling league by making some of these changes, which is, is something that I have written a piece on in the past for Squawker and you know he's got ambitions to make MLS the best league in the world by 2045 which yeah you know even I'll say that's that's incredibly ambitious but he's aiming high and at the moment for the most part as much as he's not getting everything right I think he's getting some of the, the critical parts right and the more sort of Brendan Harrison's and then before that you know Miguel Almarone and, and Tyler Adams that we see going to Europe and having success the more relevance they're going to have in the global game and, and ultimately you know, the, the higher the level's going to go with that investment. Well, on that basis, you've picked out five players for us that have kind of caught your eye. So let's get, let's go through those one at a time, starting uh, with Gianluca Busio of Sporting Kansas City, 18 years old, kind of holding midfielder, the youngest player to ever sign with an MLS franchise or since Freddie Adu and DC United in 2004, I should say. We all know how that uh, worked out third youngest player to start an MLS match ever. What what can you tell us about him, Chris? Well, first off, the fact that he's still eighteen is just is just incredible. I mean, he came on our radar so early that it seems like he's been around forever already, and he, he's still not out of his teens yet. Um, he's been linked with like quite a few European clubs recently. You know, I've, I've seen him linked with Fiorentina and, and Barcelona, among quite a few others, uh, which gives you an indication of how much talent he's got. He's he's quick, he's mobile. I think his best position myself is a number six where he can sort of get the ball and, and drive it forward quick, you know, using his dribbling and using his pace and where he can also be in a position to sort of show off his passing range. You know, he's, he's great at long and short passing. Uh, for a player of his age, he seems to make all the right decisions. So, and that's his best position, but he, he's played as an eight, he's played as a ten sort of that licence to get in the box. He uh, scored a goal against uh, San Jose, which really sort of highlighted his ability to, to arrive in the box and, and find the finish. So, yeah, I, th- I think that really highlights his ability to sort of, you know, make the right runs into the box so he, he can he can play further forward um, and he can even play on the left. Uh, he's, he's good at pressing, he can tackle, he can intercept. He's, he's intelligent where he's, you know, in, in the way he positions himself to, to cut out passes and he's alive to loose balls as well. So... There's plenty to see there, and, and and if he continues his development, he's got an incredibly high ceiling. You can see exactly why those big European clubs are after him. Uh, yes, yeah, as I said before, Fiorentina and, and Barcelona seem to be the, the biggest two at the moment that, that are chasing him. And if I was to, I wrote a piece for one goal on this exact topic recently, and if, if I was to pick out one that he'd go to, for me it'd be Fiorentina. Um, 
Barcelona's obviously it's it's bright lights and it's exciting and you've got Sergio Dest and Conrad De La Fuente there at the moment, um, fellow Americans. But and the most important thing for Busio now is he he only last year nailed himself down as a consistent starter and I think getting those minutes now is most important. So if he wasn't to go to Barcelona, where effectively if he weren't loaned out, he'd probably be playing in in the Barcelona B team, which isn't the right level of competition. Then I'd prefer. Obviously, I think a lot of US fans would prefer him to go to Fiorentina or stay another year at Sporting KC. Well, moving on to someone you mentioned earlier when we're discussing Atlanta United, George Bello, eighteen years old again, a left back, and played for the Southern Soccer Academy in his youth, affiliated to Chelsea, but uh, remained in the States. He's made it. Made his debut. Made his kind of breakthrough. A couple of years ago, but really sort of established himself. I think it's fair to say in in the season just gone as as quite an attacking left back. Is is that fair? What 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 sort of profile of of fullback is George Bello? Yeah, well, I mean, interestingly, you mentioned Chelsea there, and, and ahead of the twenty nineteen season, Chelsea were one of about four or five clubs. Another one that comes to mind was Everton that that were linked with him, but he suffered a bad injury which kept him out for the year, and that sort of put to bed any any hopes of him moving at that point but yeah he's a, he's a really strong attacking fullback you know he's quick he's got that engine to get up and down the left flank for the full game you know he's got he's got a, a really high fitness level he's good at getting past defenders one on one in the final third and relative to his age and experience he's a really strong defender too um, and he made the, the highest tackles per 90 among Atlanta United players for more than 150 minutes last year and you know he, he's not scared to get stuck in so he does need to improve his defensive positioning, I think, and you know he he got caught out a couple of times in the MLS's back tournament, just just being way too wide and leaving gaps between his centre half, and I think maybe his his final third decision making could do with some work, but they're all things that come with experience, which you know you got to remember this this guy missed missed the whole year of his development and only come back last year, so I think full back to position where United States are are incredibly strong at the moment and they're only getting stronger, but. If Bello keeps developing the way he did in 2020, where he was one of the only bright spots in a terrible season for Atlanta, then I think he, he could definitely break his way into the national team as well. Yeah, I was going to say, the, the, the fullbacks last two seem to be quite stacked from a, from a US men's national team position. Um, Anthony Robinson, obviously just one option at left back and very much known to a Premier League audience. is Is he got a reasonable opportunity, George Bello, of... Of, of of rivaling of rivaling Robinson for left back and and how does he kind of compare from a stylistic point of view? Yeah, I think he absolutely does. Um, I wouldn't say in the immediate future, although he is getting call ups to the youth teams and he is training with the with the senior team on a regular basis. Um, I think it's quite understandable that that Greg Berhalter would would always go for the the player who's playing the Premier League. And to be quite honest, in my opinion, playing as one of the best left backs in the Premier League at the moment, at least on form. So. It's understandable that he's the, the current number one choice there. You know, Serginio Des can also play at left back as well as right back too. So they have quite options there. But in terms of comparison, they're both, you know, Robinson and Bello are both attacking fullbacks. Um, I would say that Robinson's output in the final third is, is quality delivery. His delivery is better right now. Um, that's not to say that Bello won't get there. He's a young player. He's still learning the ropes, but... Given two or three years, I think you could see similarities and I think you could see him really pushing hard to take his spot. Now, the next player, I have to admit, 
I had never heard of, and I had to, <laughs> I had to check how to pronounce his name. So correct me if I butcher this, but Paxton Pomacall of FC Dallas, 21, left winger, only played uh, quite sparingly in, in MLS last season. Uh, Texas native who came through Dallas's youth setup. He's made his senior debut for the U.S. men's national team. Seems like someone who we might be hearing quite a bit more about in the in the not too distant future, Chris. Yeah, he's. I'd put him down as one of, if not my favorite, MLS prospect right now. Um, the only reason he didn't get a lot of minutes last year was was through injury problems. Um, so he's had a very disrupted 2020, which slowed his development down but everything I'm hearing from inside Dallas and from the player himself is that we've got a big 2021 in store um, Yeah, he, he does play a lot on the left but personally I see him as a, as a number 6 who could develop into something similar to Darlington Nagby who obviously we've mentioned a few times now he's he's played a lot of minutes through the middle, he's, he's really safe in possession can turn out of trouble uh, really hard to get the ball off he's got a really good passing range his decision making for for a player with with his lack of experience and, and his his sort of young age, his his decision making is fantastic. He seems to pick the right pass at the right time to either settle things down for Dallas or to to get him moving forward in transition quickly. So I think that's really important. Uh, he, he can tackle again, similar to to Busio before, and similar to some some of the other players we've mentioned. He's he's really intelligent without the ball, where he, he knows the right position to sort of deny space to pass through the lines he can he can cut out passing lanes he can recover loose balls so there's again there's a lot there to, to unpack with with Pomichael and I, don't, I know I don't speak alone when I say I'm really looking forward to what he brings in in 2021 I think if he gets it right he could be one of the next ones to move to Europe well the next player up is Lewis Binks of the very recently rebranded uh, CF Montreal of course producing Montreal impact he's already left the club in effect to join Bologna last August he's he's back on loan for the season ahead only 19 and came through the the youth setup at Spurs Chris Quite an interesting character and so much, or quite an interesting career, I suppose, in in all of that, and the fact that he's been capped by England and, and Scotland at youth level. What can you tell us about Lewis Binks? Yeah, well, he's definitely an outlier and an, an interesting player to look at, given that you know we're seeing so many players leave MLS at the moment to further their development. He wasn't getting the minutes at Spurs. Obviously, they've they've got an extremely there, and that's understandable. But with that, he chose to go to MLS and. You know, a lot of people, from what I've read, question Matt his decision to do that and, and question whether it was the right thing for him to do. But the player himself has been very forthright in saying he sees MLS as a good league for him to develop in. Uh, he, he's played so well during his time there that Bologna, as you mentioned, have already picked him up. And after a loan this, this coming year, he'll head over to Italy. Centre-back's a, a, a demanding place to be in Thierry Henry's Montreal team. Uh, they, they come under a lot of pressure Um Partly as a as a symptom of the way they play, you know they they do turn over the ball quite a lot in their own half and and have to make quick recoveries and and they're not the most talented squad let's say in, in MLS with with all due respect but you know he's, he's six foot two so obviously he's aerially dominant and he won more aerial duels per ninety than any other Montreal player last year. He's also physically strong, you know he's good in the tackle. He topped out last year in Montreal in terms of interceptions. He was second for clearances, so he's he's effective defensively and he's really intelligent at positioning himself in to, to cut out crosses. He seems to hold a good line with his centre-back partner, so there's a lot there defensively. Um, and for, for a player who is so so big and so 
so sort of physically dominant. He's surprisingly good on the ball. You know, he, he can he completed over sixty eight. He completed. Oh my God, I can't say that now. <laughs> he completed over eighty six percent of his passes last season, which was one of the highest among Montreal players, and and that is the way that Henri wants his team to play. So. There's a, there's a lot there, and as I say, it's, it's an interesting sort of subject just just because of the sort of reverse career path that he's taken, but one that appears to have paid dividends for him already. Superb. And then just finally uh, from this section, James Sands of NYCFC, 20 years old, seems to be that kind of play can play in defence or in the centre of midfield as well. Correct me if I'm wrong. The club, the franchise's first ever homegrown player, and he was signed at the time alongside his twin brother, Will, and seems to have become a regular in the last couple of seasons. What what sort of player is he? Yeah, he's another one that I have to admit I keep overlooking him and him and Keaton Parks at NYCFC, but I'm very wrong to do so, and people on Twitter are very quick to remind me not to do it time and again, but as you say, he can play as a sort of a deep line midfielder or as a centre back, which obviously highlights his ability defensively but I think it, the most impressive part for me is, is his ability on the ball he's, he's an absolutely fantastic passer um, you know he's, he's ambitious and progressive he, he's not scared to break lines um, he can take the ball under pressure and he's not scared to do so and you're already seeing those sort of number sixes get success in Europe with and the obvious one would be Tyler Adams where it's high energy it, it's defensive intelligence, but it's coupled with really good ball playing. And I think James Sands comes from a very similar school of thought. So, if not this year, then possibly next year. I think with the, with a good MLS season under his belt, I think he's another one who who could very quickly get some interest from Europe. And just to round off, because this is one that you you mentioned uh, Brendan Aronson going to RB Salzburg, and I think we've mentioned Mark McKenzie going to Genk. Just quickly, one that looks like it's in the offing right now to finish up Brian Reynolds. Uh, moving to Europe quite likely, it seems, with Juventus. What what can we expect from him? Uh, is, is he someone that would be kind of in contention straight away or are they likely to loan him out? And, and what kind of player is uh, Brian Reynolds? Yeah, I mean, at the moment, it looks like Club Bruges is still challenging for his, uh, for his signature as well, but it looks like Juventus are the favourites. Uh, from everything that I'm hearing, He's going to be loaned straight out to Benevento if he does go, which will, will give him a, a nice platform to hit the ground running in, in Europe. But he's very much come out of the blue. Um, Reggie Cannon was the starting right back at FC Dallas and, and then moved to Boa Vista in Portugal in last September. And, and basically, Brian Reynolds has, has come in from being an ex-forward and moved straight in at right back and just hit the ground running. And it's as if it, that's always been his position. Uh, he's... Again, he's another one who's he's physically strong. He, you know, he can't be bullied, and that pace allows him to get forward. But he's also got that recovery speed that you'd say from, say, the likes of an Alfonso Davis, for example, who he can maraud forward as much as he wants. But you know, he's safe and he can get back and recover when when his team's hitting transition. So still young, but seems to have really good intelligence in the final third. You know, he's got got decent delivery. He's not not scared to get stuck in. He seems to be flexible in his, his positioning just in the fact that he was able to adjust to, to right back after being a forward and seems like another exciting prospect who's already been tipped for, for national team minutes. So if if he goes to Juventus, as I say, he'll go to Benevento first, get some good minutes and then, you know, Weston McKenney's already made an impression at Juventus. So, so why not another, yeah, why not another American in, in Brian Reynolds? Yeah, well, I, I, 
Weston McKinney was obviously their first American, wasn't he? And he scored some important goals this season. And I dare say that he won't be their last and certainly not the last American export out of Major League Soccer. Well, Chris, thank you ever so much for joining us on this week's edition of Laptop Gurus. That was fantastic insight you've provided there. If you aren't already following Chris on Twitter, make sure you do give him a follow. It's at CJSmith91. And make sure you're following 23 as well. It's at 23Sport. This podcast will be out every other Friday in 2021 and you can get it via Apple, Google, Spotify and pretty much any other podcast platform. And just finally, if you want to learn anything more about what 23 do, drop us an email at info at 23.sport. <laughs>